All right, all right. What's up, world? Back at it again with Fluent Talks episode number. We're not exactly sure, but we're about at 10, I think. Um, so happy to have everybody here. And I have a very special guest with us this week alongside my co-host, Andrea. We got Darren Douglas, crypto investor, B-School alumni, among other things. Darren, happy to have you. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you both for having me. Pleasure to be here. Yeah, so I guess uh, the way Darren got roped into doing this, we'll start it off with a quick story this week, is uh, Andrea and I and Matt, who again couldn't make it this week, uh, went out to to Omakase, um, and then after Omakase... We had to finish, it was BYOB, so we had too many drinks that we didn't finish during dinner, sat down at Washington Square Park. Which was glorious on a Tuesday yeah, slept afternoon. On, I mean, people know about it, but it's been too long since I was at Washington Square I mean, Park. I guess because we have not been in college for 20 years, we just haven't been to intersection, Park. Intersection of like every culture in the world. Like everything's fantastic. going on there. So many different live types of music, dancing, amazing. And then uh, we thought we were just going to have a nightcap and then having ended up having a second dinner because that's just how we roll. Where do we go for the second day? I don't we know. We went that. to Mineta Tavern because just couldn't resist a burger. Yeah, good burgers, great faux gras. <laughs> um, and then after that, um, I was walking home. I love a good night walk, like through the city by myself. Just soak up the vibes, be in your thoughts, just kind of be alone. And then I was kind of like, am I going to go make this move and meet up with Darren? Am I not? Um, and then he called me... Um, when I was probably like five minutes from home and I was like, I should come. And he was like, yeah, you should come. And I was like, I died. Hard left. Yeah. To like all the way out to Brooklyn. <laughs> so we met up at Pony Boy in uh, Brooklyn and I was like, hey, we don't have a guest yet. Uh, you want to come talk everything crypto, et cetera. So Thank any, you. anything I'm missing. The, the fact that you're on a, a solo walk throughout the city does not surprise me at all. Yeah. <laughs> no, I was scheming. So how do you two know each other? So we went to undergrad together, College Amazing. Washington and Lee University. Um, and I think since maybe the first week, we were both uh, on the basketball team. So we met as recruits and everything else since there is history. Yeah. Yeah. Now we met both at Washington and Lee playing basketball. And I think we were just like, hey, I guess we got to be friends now. And, you know, <laughs> literally ever since uh, we've, you know, he's probably one of the people that I've seen more than anybody else since college because he's from New York and I've lived oh, here. Amazing. and. He's in we, Philly for a bit. Not only did we, we were co-captains of the basketball team together, but I'm remembering now we also did our first pitch competition together. Oh, yeah. We actually started. Our, we started the entrepreneurship, you know, vibe out together. You want to tell them a little bit about yes. what we did? Yeah, we had an, we had an idea around uh, sports vending machines that we, we developed a business plan, developed a pitch. Andrew handled all the financial modeling. Um, and we won some money. We we ended up not pursuing it because we were going on our... So wait, what would you get out of the vending machine? You could get basketballs, volleyballs, or Like actual equipment. Yes. yes. For, so, when we said we were going to like start it out on Miami Beach. Um, so like people that are on vacation have or a project. parks. Parks as well, yeah. They could just come rent it for an hour or two. Like it was, it was inspired by like Redbox at the time. I don't know yeah, if you remember that, that yeah, business, yeah, yeah. but because um, like you would drop it back, exactly. like frisbees, like cool stuff. Yeah, really um, hard to travel with. Yeah, it's annoying to travel sell it for with. a premium. Yeah, yeah. I love trademark, that. trademark, <laughs> trademark, trademark. <laughs> cut that, cut that, cut that. Um, Did you guys have a name for this business? Sport Hub. Yeah, that was our Sport name. Sport Hub TM. 
I actually still have that business plan that we wrote on my computer and I've used it as like an outline for like other businesses and stuff I've come up with. So it was, it was actually That's one of the incredible. most impactful classes I think I took in college. Um, same here. It oh, was a long business plan, maybe yeah. 40, 50 pages. Yeah. <laughs> one, one other thing I have to shout Darren out for is he was like the king of finding like the easy classes to take in college. He would be like, bro, there's this dance class. No way. They always give A's to everybody. You don't Do you guys always actually take dance together we yeah. did take dance class oh my god are we gonna see the moves at the wedding we might yeah <laughs> actually we definitely will i was a computer science major so i was always looking for classes to balance out my gpa yes. <laughs> yes. Smart. Yeah. dance was one of those what classes. else did we we did dance we did theater i think we did 3d we did printing a, we did a, uh, a documentary course a documentary did course. you guys film a documentary together we yeah. did. It's on YouTube somewhere. Yeah, we might have to put that link in the uh, bio of this pod. Yes, we need all these gems from the vault. I know. The world needs to see this. There's, there's some gems that are locked away to never be seen. Yeah. And then there's the we gems can that we filter can filter them. We got, definitely have to have a filter. I fully agree. All right. So, Darren, learning a little bit about you, I guess you want to start with where you're from and a little bit about your background. Yeah. So, I mean, we're currently in New York City. So, I grew up not too far away from here in Westchester, New York. Okay. Um, um, a small town called Elmsford, New York. Um, went to school in Rye at Rye Country Day, and then um, it was off to Virginia for college, and now I'm based in Los Angeles. Oh, wow. So what brings you to New York this week? I was back visiting home, and Got I knew it. his and wedding was coming up. So through for a few weeks. I sort of have an extended nice. workcation. So where, where <laughs> else in the world have you lived, and which was your favorite of all of them, and why? So after school in Virginia, I moved to Philadelphia. I was there for about three years, and I think I really grew up in that city. Because um, it's always sunny. <laughs> that's true. <laughs> it, it makes it easy to, 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 to get back to New York, which was one yes. part. Um, it was super affordable, great sports city. I was there for the Super Bowl. But I think Los Angeles has been my favorite place to live. Over, over New York? or I haven't That's really a hot lived. take from it a is, New Yorker. It is. It is. <laughs> I, I'm not saying Los Angeles over New York, but um, I haven't lived in New York really as an adult yet. So Fair. I'll, I'll give Los it Angeles the It makes a big difference. It does. Where in Los Angeles do you live? I live on the west side in Sawtell, um, not too far from, from Westwood uh, okay. where I was in business school. If uh, you could live anywhere in the world, though, like something crazy, where would you pick of like the places you've traveled? I'm biased. I was I was there recently, but I've been raging about Thailand. Um, tropical climate. Yeah, uh, tell tell us yeah, a little bit about, about that. Why trip. were you doing there? Uh, I was there with some of my um, my classmates from UCLA, and we were just sort of island hopping, um, city hopping between Bangkok, Phuket, Koh Samui. Um, there's still a lot of islands I haven't seen, so. It's on my list to go back and see Koh Tao and some of the others. What did you like the most about Thailand? The food is really good. I probably got a massage every single day. Stop. I had old ladies walking on my back and I was <laughs> that so loose. so amazing. <laughs> For like two, zero dollars. Yeah, basically. We're basically. traveling with Darren. Yeah. Add him to the travel group. <laughs> Um, so I guess what I, I, you went out there kind of to celebrate that you just graduated from B school or was there another mission behind the trip? Pretty much. Um, I feel like with business school, a big part of the, maybe not the, the curriculum, but a big part of the experience is traveling. And we had nice. a COVID year and an in-person year. So to make up for the, for the lost time, we figured why not take a trip to Asia? So we went to Korea and to Thailand. So digging in a bit about B-School, I guess, what, what originally made you decide that going to business school would be a good idea? 
Yeah, I never thought I would have went to business school. I never thought I would have went back to school after. What um, were you doing right before you decided to go to business school? Yeah, so so taking a step back, right after undergrad, I did a fellowship called Venture for America. Okay. Um, the easiest way to describe it is Teach for America, but for entrepreneurs. Um, so it was a two-year fellowship where I sort of went to a startup boot camp, um, was working as a software developer for a company in Philadelphia. Very cool. Um, a merchandise company that works with gamers, uh, music festivals, uh, conferences like South by Southwest or Forbes 30 under 30. And I realized I got a lot of experience from marketing, from coding. I was the only developer exposure to finance. Um, but I realized the importance of, of fundraising and a lot of the struggles that founders have. Um, so I wanted to be a part of the solution. And I studied computer science, so I didn't have that finance background. Right. Um, and I really liked Los Angeles as a startup market. So I was really focusing my business school um, application process on locations where I could invest and really build out um, in the startup community. Did you feel like you got like what you want? Well, I guess, what did you think you would get out of B school? And then like, what do you feel like now having done it were like the biggest pros and cons? <laughs> I thought it would be a lot more schoolwork, honestly. <laughs> <laughs> and after the first maybe quarter or two, I realized that wasn't the case. It was a lot more networking, traveling, interviewing, um, and I think what I, what I got out of it was the network. And that is something that I wanted to get out of it. Um, I have some lifelong friends and I also have a lot more West coast connections than I did before. Um, and with tech and investing, you sort of need to have that San Francisco, Silicon did, Valley. Did connection. you learn about finance at all really? Or do you, I, Oh, I did. <laughs> I did. But I think that came more yeah, so I, from I, the internships than the in-course okay. uh, or the in-class work. I was going to say he was watching LinkedIn learning courses on his flights, yeah. and that's how he learned about <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> right. uh, So would you do it again? Would you recommend going to business school? I would definitely recommend going to business school. I would do it again if they allowed it. <laughs> I feel like I need to learn. No regrets. More. Actually, I don't want to graduate. Can I do two more years? <laughs> I'm a three-time MBA. <laughs> <laughs> so I guess um, – I guess – you originally wanted to get into investing. That was part of the reason that you went. I, I remember at one point you also wanted to do some sports stuff, I guess. When yeah. did you kind of transition from wanting to do sports to wanting to do, like, I guess, investing? And then we can get into a bit of the crypto stuff as well. Sure. When I when I was applying to business schools, I think the story that made most sense in my head and made most sense to the admissions committee, which also matters, um, <laughs> was I was an athlete. I had a technical background. And I could see an easy path to working in sports in a technical capacity. Um, but as I got to school and I started interviewing with some of these companies like your Nikes or your Adidas, I realized that I was still really interested in entrepreneurship mm -hmm. and going to a massive company wouldn't be a way to scratch that itch. So I started doing more um, venture capital recruiting and through my first internship, which was at an early stage venture capital firm called Precursor Ventures, I realized that I could still invest in sports. I could still be around the sports space, but I didn't have to work at one of the um, like you know, Nikes or right, yeah. one of the, the institutional sort of companies. Um, so I realized I would just sort of continue building my entrepreneurial skill set and then. You know, I still have sports as a passion on the side. Yeah. Do you still stay really close with sports, like in following what's going on and everything? I do. So if there are any athletes that are trying to get in invest, get into investing, I'm always sort of the point oh, person cool. on our team. If there's a, a sports-related investment or a sports, um, 
an athlete turned investor. I'm also sort of that middleman there. Person. Are there any uh, really cool sports-related startups that you're excited about? Yes, yeah, so this might be a hot take, but I consider gaming sports now. Yeah, esports. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Esports. So, um, PlayVS is a company I'm really excited about that we've invested in. They're sort of the NCAA for high school gamers. Okay. Um, so, if you're a high school that wants to get into gaming, you sign up for PlayVS and you can play against other schools. Um, what's what's like the revenue model behind that? So they're they're paying the league. To be a part of the uh, to be a part of the league, got it. Um, and I mean, they have sponsorships and whatnot. But they started in Los Angeles, and they're I think they're at their Series B or Series C funding round now. So they've been pretty established. Yeah, I guess so. Taking a step back for listeners that don't know much about it, I guess what is kind of venture capital? What are the different type of stages? And if you can break that down a little bit for us. Yeah, so I like to think of it as a venture capital stack at the, at the lowest level, you have your founder who's trying to raise money mm-hmm. um, to grow their, their high tech company. And not all companies need venture capital funding, but if you're trying to scale quickly, that's usually where you go. And then you'd go to your early stage investors, which we call pre-seed or seed. Um, and then those investors, uh, does that seed part happen? Like, is the company usually exist at that point or is seed like, it's the somebody with a cool idea talking to people with money. So pre-seed, seed, series A, the letters and terms, I feel like they're, they get blended together a lot of the times. Um, but now, I mean, we're seeing seed companies that are raising $10 million or $50 oh, wow. million, dollars, which is... With, it sounds with just crazy. the CEO with an idea or is yeah. it usually... No product no, yet. No, no product. I've seen that before. Just no. a really nice deck. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Maybe, maybe maybe not even a deck. Maybe just <laughs> scribbles on a napkin. Yeah. A really nice sketch. Yeah. <laughs> a lot of dads, really rich friends. <laughs> right, right. Right, right, right. But then those, those seed investors aren't investing their own money. They have to go to uh, limited partners or LPs, which we call them, which can be your university endowments, which can be your foundations, okay, family offices, or just really wealthy individuals. And those are the ones that are really funding the entire venture capital ecosystem. Got it. So there's like basically people with massive amounts of cash that they're sitting on and then venture capital, it seeps its way to right. the venture capitalists that then invest it basically on behalf of like large wealth holders. Exactly. Makes sense. So what, which part of that stack, as you mentioned, do you think is the most interesting and where do you think there's the most like alpha and money to be made? I think the most interesting uh, and where there's the most alpha, but also the hardest part to get right is the early stage, because that's where you might find founders, again, that have a company and they haven't built a product yet, help, haven't built um, any revenue yet, but you're able to get significant ownership and help them scale to a Series A, a Series B round. Um, when it gets a lot more crowded and it's more about picking the business and less about picking the founder. And, and how much equity and stuff, like what does that use? I know it varies a lot, but like what type of deals do you think would be like, hey, they get 60% of the equity because they got in super early or is it usually like, how does that kind of work if you had to put it to numbers? It depends on the founder. I think some founders want to give up equity early and start working on the next idea. But if you're a founder that wants to take your company public, you might be only able to give up 20% in the early stages. Oh, that's really interesting. So you find a lot of people that you think they just like, hey, this is a cool idea. Let me sell it. Let me just start another idea. Right. The, the serial entrepreneurs, we yeah. call them, who might you know, start a company. They're just looking to get it acquired once it scales and then move on to the next problem they're interested what's in. Like the, what's the investment lifestyle for a serial entrepreneur? Like three years or like what, how long are they usually with it before they flip? 
So I think if if you're someone who's doing it long term, it might be closer to ten. But if it's a serial entrepreneur, you're probably right on closer to two to three years. Yeah, it's crazy. So <laughs> I guess uh, all the I, I know that you've done a lot in like crypto and stuff. How did you kind of get into crypto, and how have you kind of weaved that also into venture capital? Yeah. So interestingly, I think I first heard about crypto back at Washington and Lee. We had a friend who was trying to buy stuff on the Silk Road, which was mm. probably like. 2013, 2014. Yeah, I was a golf board. <laughs> yeah, I, had, <laughs> right, I right. had the same friend. <laughs> <laughs> I do the friends. <laughs> <laughs> and then I was like, this is interesting. I don't really know too much about it. Um, but then I really got interested in as, a, as an investor and as a spectator in the 2017 bull run. And the, the crypto cycles, I think price is actually a lagging indicator. So the price will go up. Uh, adoption of crypto activity will increase. And then that'll attract more talent Mm -hmm. into the ecosystem. And then whether it's a marketer, a a finance professional, or a software developer, they'll build new applications that then attract more activity, more investment, and then the price follows up again. Um, So in the most recent bull run, like 2019, 2020, I think that's where I actually came in as talent. And I was trying to figure out where could I add value. Yeah. So buy the dip is what I just heard. (laughs) (laughs) Not financial advice. Yeah. (laughs) So I guess I remember at one point you kind of, I was like, okay, what's NFTs? What is crypto and stuff? I guess for for people that just have heard it and they're like, ah, that's like some scam type of thing. Like how do you explain there's our real world applications and like what are some of those that you're excited about? Yeah. I think, I think people confuse the, when they hear crypto, they're just thinking of how can I make money? And I think the conversation needs to be reframed around what is blockchain technology and how can that be used? Mm -hmm. So I like to think what industries are antiquated, haven't been innovated in a while, and where can blockchain blockchain technology come in and really disrupt that? Um, I mentioned gaming before. I think that's an obvious application that can bring a lot of innovation. Um, The art space and creators, um, you know, sort of having their their unique community of a thousand or a hundred super fans um, that really support them from early on and being able to reward them. Um, and then you also have music. I think music something that will come in the future and get disrupted. Yeah. I think one, I remember one thing that you explained to me one time is I was like, I really don't get NFTs. Like what's the point you described it to me as like, you know, like if you're playing a video game, like uh, 2k, my player, and it takes forever to get your, my player from like a 60 overall to like a 99 overall, but like someone else could have put in the time to like put make the player go from 60 to 90 and then you would buy that player from them because then you get a player that is really really good but you didn't have to put in the work so you're like almost paying somebody for that and like the same type of thing as like with an NFT because that I mean I don't know if you think of that as an NFT or if, no, that's, if I explain that right that's, but. that's 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 exactly right and I think um we saw that in some other uh, games like like CrowdStrike and Call of Duty and like people were reselling skins uh-huh. um, and skins is like a massive market that we're seeing in games like Fortnite where yes. gamers are buying digital fashion items that they can wear in their game and display to their friends and all of those can be sold as NFTs um, and not just go to the game so publisher. So what's the difference then of just you know going from a digital item in the ecosystem of a game to being an NFT? So if it's a digital uh, item in the game, it's owned by, by a game, game publisher, and they could decide to shut off the game. They could Got go it. bankrupt. They could decide to change the game mode. So if I wanted to do a fashion business. line for my players, I'd just sell it as an NFT. Is 
that what you're saying? Well, I, I think the uh, the point is more. I think that it's like on the blockchain and it's like yeah, never it's go. How away. it is? It's not. It's only owned by like it. the current owner of it at the time, right? Right, right. And I think a, a big part of it is also being interoperable, which basically means you can use your fashion item in this game and in this game. Got it. And in every game that you want to play. It's yours for exactly. wherever you're living in the digital world. And you can the metaverse. The metaverse. <laughs> <laughs> I guess, yeah, with with all that crazy stuff said, I guess what are you kind of doing in your day-to-day now and how does that interplay with some of the stuff we talked about and what a, a type of like investments are you excited about and just general tailwinds and in industries? Yeah, so daily I'm, I'm meeting with founders, as many as I can, I think – especially early on in your VC career, you need to get the reps in so you can tell not just what's a good idea, but what's a great idea. Um, And then once I'm meeting these founders and performing diligence, I'm also presenting to our investment committee to figure out, do they fit in our portfolio or do they fit in a portfolio with one of our other um, funds that we invest in? And then outside of these meetings, I'm doing deep dives and industry reports for our LPs or our investors that want to learn more about certain sectors like luxury goods in the metaverse or micromobility um, or climate change and where investment should be directed. In those where, 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 do, where do you think it should be directed? Which for which of the three? I guess uh, like the metaverse. I've, I've just been big on gaming because I think if you look at Web3 as a whole, um, it all hinges on user adoption. Mm-hmm. There are not enough people using um crypto technology for it to be mainstream, but gaming is already mainstream. So that's going to be a key way to bring people into the metaverse. What about the losers? Who do you think will be like the losers in the space and that like are like kind of just doing, you know, a little bit of phantom nothing? I think it's basically everyone who's doing, who's building for the short term. You have to think long term. If you're thinking that I want to launch a game or I want to launch this crypto project that can get me a bunch of money today, um, but you're not thinking about what your users are going to do with it in five years right. or in 10 years, you're bound to fail. So I think probably related, like have you're talking about how you're meeting with a lot of people to differentiate between a good idea and a great idea. Have you found like certain tells of a great idea that like, even if they're going across different industries, like are you starting to build that? Like this is a DNA of a great company. Yes. Yes. I think, so I mentioned earlier that, um, at the early stages, it's more about picking the founder and picking mm-hmm. the people than it is about picking the business. And I think what's most important is a differentiated understanding of the problem that you're solving. So if you have a great idea for um, a new seltzer brand, mm-hmm. that's great. That's a booming market. You might be able to start something. But if you worked at Anheuser-Busch for right. the last 15 years and you're you know, sort of on the ground of that company, you probably have a unique understanding of the market. And I'm going to bet on you over someone who's just coming into the space. And not only that, if you're able to recruit people from your team or other people that you've worked with, that shows that you can attract top talent. And I'm going to over-index on that. That's Andrea. That's one that we always talk about is like if someone joins, like how well can they like bring their people with them? And that's like always a a huge tell. Yeah. It's a huge tell because you know – if other people, other really talented people are believing in you and like putting a bet to follow you somewhere else, you know they are already have a really good 
leadership. Leadership. Yeah, yeah. They're a, a talent magnet almost. A, yeah, yes, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And you hope talent magnets bring are also revenue magnets. So. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, one, yeah. Usually they have they something. They usually are related. So. I guess, so for the longer term, I guess now you're doing venture capital stuff. Do you want to stay as a venture capitalist? Do you want to get back into sports in the long term? Like, I guess if you look like zoom back out, um, what, what type of stuff do you want to do in the future? I get this question a lot and I've always found it hard to identify as a venture capitalist because I still identify as an entrepreneur and I sort of think of uh, my long-term vision as uh, myself working in a triangle between being an operator, an entrepreneur, and an investor. Mm-hmm. And no matter which of the three I'm working on at the present moment, it's always helping me to become a better operator and a better entrepreneur and a better investor. Um, so I think I'm a lifelong entrepreneur, Yeah, say it simply. So do you have any projects of your own happening right now? I do. So um, there is a, a gaming project that I've been working with closely called the Rumble Kong League. It's a three-on-three basketball game uh, built on the blockchain that's in development now. Surprise, surprise. Everything (laughs) comes together. It does, it does. (laughs) Um, And I'm working on a DAO, um, which is a decentralized autonomous organization around that game uh, that helps onboard users, provides uh, educational content, as well as analytics for people within the ecosystem. And not only are we a DAO, um, we're actually a sub-DAO, which is, might be a new term. Um, we're a sub-DAO of uh, Yield Guild Games, which is a bigger DAO out of um, the Philippines. All right, so you gotta, you got to break that down a little bit for the listeners <laughs> yes. out there. How exactly does this all work? So uh, a DAO um, is basically a, a company that's based on the blockchain, um, a company with a shared wallet around a shared mission. Okay. So you can say... Um, there was actually a DAO that was started from someone from Washington and Lee to buy the Constitution. You might have heard about this. Mm-hmm. And they just said, we want to buy the Constitution at this upcoming auction. Uh, if you want to help invest, you can submit money to this wallet. Is that like a donation or is it an investment, though? It's an investment. It's an investment because the idea is that you would own the Constitution and you'd be able to maybe sell it in the future or do something else with That's it. It's a group. Yeah. But like you bought a stake Right. This wallet. So um, when you say you're a DAO for this company, that means that you're like raising basically you're finding investors for the the for Rumble Kong game. So for any NFT project, a lot of times there's a DAO working in parallel with it to help manage the operation. And that's that's the operational part, or that's the fundraising part. Uh, it's it's more of both. It's a little okay. bit of both because the NFT project may raise money on its own, but the DAO will need to fund the people that are working for it. And if they have uh, other ambitions and want to fund projects within the ecosystem, they can also raise money there. So a DAO is almost like a, a fundraising operating group. No, it, it, they don't. They don't <laughs> always have. Yeah, they don't. It's it's interesting because they don't always have to fundraise. They can be static. You could just um, like put money there, but then use it to pay people, like more on the operational part, right? Right. Right. So it's not just about attracting money, but like that's like. It's just like a group of talented people that sometimes has money as well. (laughs) Right, right. right. (laughs) You can say, we want to start a TV show. Let's do a DAO. We want to start a fashion company. Let's start a DAO. It's more about where that is living in the blockchain. Is that a lot of that happening in Discord or is there like some other platform where like the communication and like community is? So Discord is usually the communication platform. Uh, Juicebox is the fundraising platform that most of these DAOs use to raise money. Okay. there's some other tooling that I could I can think of and maybe leave in the notes, but cool. DAOs DAOs are basically internet 
LLCs. Yeah, makes sense. <laughs> Internet LLCs, that's a p- yeah. perfect way to put it. So moving into a topic that I know is um, important to you, I guess, how have you kind of intertwined like DEI and making an impact on the community and uh, I guess venture capital, which is, I think, a very homogeneous community and like kind of how have you w- woven that in and kind of what visions do you have to I- improve that for the future? Yeah, I think it's a tough question because there's no silver bullet. Um, but I think technology and the tech industry in general isn't very diverse. Venture capital, even less so. Crypto, even less so. <laughs> um, so one part is just being vocal um, and making people know that, like, I'm a black man working on this project. Mm-hmm. There are other people like me that might be interested in this as well. Um, and then also finding organizations and people that align with my values. So I try to be a values-driven investor, a values-driven entrepreneur, so that I'm not um, sort of going against the grain in terms of leading for diversity and inclusion. Yeah. I guess how how can minorities, really like anything outside of white men, like how do you see them being able to be empowered to do more in the entrepreneurship community and the venture? I guess really entrepreneurship community broadly. Like how do you think they'll be able to get more funding have more eyes on them. Like I think, I think it goes top down. So I'm really proud of what uh, the firm I'm at Plexo Capital is doing um, for diversity and inclusion in this space. We actually won the National Venture Capital Association's award for DE and I. That's um, awesome. And what we do is basically, it was an idea that spun out of Google Ventures. We invest in diverse investors because investors tend to invest in people who look like them. Um, So when you invest in diverse investors, they actually get differentiated deal flow because they come from different experiences. They see problems that traditional investors may not. And this idea of investing in um, diverse investors started as just black investors. And then we um, broadened that to include women and people of color. And what we found is that as we invest in these investors, their portfolios are very diverse as well. And then we're able to fund more diverse entrepreneurs who are solving problems that haven't been solved before in the past. I imagine it does, but like, have is there like numbers out there to back up that like it is also a like yeah. you know economically smart decision? Yeah, it is. It is. It's, it 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 drives more alpha because if you're investing in the same people, you're going to get the same. You're in the same network of people. Mm-hmm. There's um, more like uh, competition on deals then, which drives up the price. I guess There's right. Less, and you yeah. see, you see. I, I don't want to bash any sort of industry, but you see a lot of solutions for products that don't necessarily solve a real world problem that'll be like <laughs> instead of getting your same day delivery let's make it 15 minutes or right, like, yeah. let's make right. it 10 minutes and it's like do we really need that or do no. people in like a third world country need like a banking solution or like <laughs> or like 10 day delivery yeah, yeah exactly <laughs> so i think it's 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 looking at like what are the people that haven't had solutions for themselves in a while um Right. What are problems that still exist and that are growing problems? And how can we find entrepreneurs working for those problems? And who are the investors that are close to those issues that know the best people working on those solutions? Yeah, that makes sense. So I, you mentioned some about your company now. I guess what other companies do you look up to? I guess DEI or just in general as as like really well-run companies? I think I was spoiled in my venture capital career so far because both um, both teams have been v- very diverse Um the precursor ventures team I started at was minority women on the investment team. I mean, sorry, majority women on the investment team. Um, I don't know if there's a 
there isn't really a firm to look up to that is like leading with diversity <laughs> inclusion outside of like the MBA is a good one. We talked about one time. Yeah. For companies in general, I think the MBA is really good. I think leagues um, have done really well. The WNBA in particular sort of leaves in terms of activism as a whole. Um, when I look at companies that are just brands that I think have cultivated good loyalty and good community, you can look at something like Nike. I yeah. think they also yeah. do a really good job with diversity and inclusion um yeah in terms of innovation less so on the de and i uh front the ufc i don't think they get enough credit for how innovative they've been they're now owned by espn and disney right 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 and they sort of just birthed this this new sport almost out of it out of thin air yeah no that what they've done is amazing i guess okay so what what type of uh style of leadership do you think is the most effective um that you've seen so far that's a good one I can think of individual leaders and qualities that I like. I think you need to be a visionary first and foremost. You need to not just be able to see in your space what's happening tomorrow, next year, five years, but 10 years down the line. But I also really think it's important to be a servant leader. Uh, And what I mean by that is not emphasizing on control, but emphasizing how you empower the team around you. And I think that's especially important for, for startups because you want to scale your team and scale the teams under them so that you can grow. And if you're focused on micromanaging and how much power and control you have, you might actually stunt the growth of the team. Yeah. What about you, Andrea? What have you seen? That's a really, really good one. I think empowering other teams is key because in a much smaller scale, when I had my own business, you get caught up all, all the time, like just trying to do it yourself. And I think even beyond just empowering them, I think hiring it's a really important skill. Like even just being able to like, even if you're not able to pull people yourself because you might not even know that you, anybody immediately for the role that you want to fill, um, being able to see those skills in somebody else and like in a way, because you want to bring somebody in and be able to trust them almost from day one. Yeah. You don't want to bring people in that like you're going to have to micromanage. Like hire for what you're not good at. Hire for your flaws and just give them free reign. Yeah. And I think those are the best leaders. I think one thing I've been struggling with, uh, just like being introspective about Infuse, is like letting some stuff go. Like at one point it was just me doing it. Now we have a full team. But I feel like sometimes I'm still like, ah, like is, this, is this getting done? Is this getting it's done? Really and tough. it's like, I just need to like let go and like let people yeah. thrive. Um, but to your point, hiring good people is so important with that. Because um, if you feel you can trust them and everybody's going to fuck up, you're going to fuck up. Yeah. So like <laughs> you might as well have somebody that you trust to... Uh, pick it up and then like and then when you do let go and someone's like no like I got this I'm gonna do it and you're just like oh that's amazing (laughs) the funny thing is I also think a different leadership style is required for different stages of a company and I think I saw this when I was uh, at the startup through Venture for America when you have a company that only has five people Mm -hmm. you might need one leadership style when you grow to 20 or 50 you may need another and then by the time you have a few hundred people you might have a completely different leader or need a completely Absolutely. different leader at that stage. All right. I'm going to hit you with another philosophical one. We only got a little bit of time left, but how do you track your goals and accomplishments? Ooh, that's a good one. I could always be doing better at this. Um, I like to lean on my peers heavily. Um, I think <laughs> it sounds funny looking back at this, but during Venture for America, we had something called accountability buddies. <laughs> and we would meet monthly or have a phone call monthly. Um, 
and we would share our goals with each other and then we'd check in to see like how we were progressing to these goals. And I still do a version of this today because I think when you share your goals and your ambitions yeah. with other people, you're more likely to hold yourself accountable. At least I am. That's incredible. Mm-hmm. Um, so I like to, you know, share what I'm working on and not hold it too close to my chest. You said you're going to do it. You better do it. Otherwise, yeah. you're a bozo. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but yeah. I get it. Like, yeah. that's kind of just, that's, I was like, just put it out of the universe. So then, like, you have to do it. Yeah. And the and the time frame for that, uh, we did 12-week goals. Oh, so wow. So when you have a year goal, it can be really hard to keep up. And maybe in one month, you can't get as much so it's done like as quarterly you goals, right? Right. Yeah. That's incredible that you still have that rigor to we, keep doing We it. do a lot of, like, quarterly goals, I feel like. Yes. Just in general. Is there, like, amount of time, I feel like, to, especially for new ideas or for, like, bigger projects, like you're saying, for, like, have the time to develop it, to run after it, and then see it. And then I feel, I mean, patient, I think anything longer. Like, sometimes you just, yeah. it's both ways, right? Like, if it's too short, then you have the excuse that you didn't have enough time to do it. Right. If it's too long, you might just keep pushing it off, and then you never do it. Yeah. Another thing is... I think a trap is setting goals that are too attainable because oh, yeah. cause then you're just, you know, checking it off every month, every, every quarter. You have to like actually feel good. Like what, yes. what, what percentage of the time do you think you should actually hit your goal? 60 to 70%. 70%. Yeah. 70%. Classic OKR rules, 70%. Oh, is, that, is that an OKR <laughs> thing? Yeah, you should hit in 70% on your OKRs is actually a good thing. All right. So I'm going to tell people when I'm at 70% of my goals that I'm doing what I'm doing. Our OKRs are not our financial goals. Yeah. All right. So I'm going to hit you with our, our last one that we like to wrap it up with. How, how do you unwind after work and like make sure to take care of your mental health and your day-to-day life? That's a really good one. Uh, unwinding is necessary. Um, if I have something planned and I like with friends, that would be ideal. I think like talking with friends or family is always great. Um, but just getting outside, yes. <laughs> plug yeah. for Los Angeles. <laughs> I mean, every day is like 70 and sunny. So whether it's going for a run, going to shoot hoops, just going for a walk and hopping on the phone, um, I need sunlight. Except like every when day. it's 120 degrees. What do you want Because <laughs> don't lie to me. The first time I went to LA, it was 120 degrees for four days straight. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> then you just look outside. <laughs> then you just go to the movies. <laughs> Andre, I was listening to one of our old pods, and one of the things we said is working out in wine. I'm like, maybe we should change the podcast name to working, working out in wine. Because it's like the key to happiness. That is, I yeah. will, that will be my same answer for every pod. What do I like to wind up to yeah. wind out? It's work out in work wine. Out in wine. Yeah, All right. Sure. Well, Darren, really appreciate you joining us and making the uh, trip down from Westchester. I feel smarter. I think we learned a lot in this yeah. pod. It was I don't very know. Good. Yeah, my brain got a little scrambled in the middle, but <laughs> yeah, I might have to listen back. <laughs> the notes may be key. <laughs> yeah, but this is really awesome. Thank you so All right, much. We out.